We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. We are going through Peter Singer's book, Ethics in the Real World, 82 Brief Essays on Things That Matter, starting with the very first essay entitled, The Value of a Pale Blue Dot. Okay, go for it. The 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant wrote, Two things fill the heart with ever-renewed and increasing awe and reverence. The more often and more steadily we meditate upon them, the starry firmament above and the moral law within. Okay, so just a little bit of, of background. It's, it's probably fitting or intentional that he's beginning with Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant uh, totally transformed uh, philosophy. So philosophy prior to Immanuel Kant was Aristotle. And everything that leads into Aristotle, meaning Socrates and Plato, and then everything that's influenced by, by Aristotle. And then along comes Immanuel Kant in the 1700s in Germany, and he reframes the whole thing. So what is it that's the key of philosophy? The key of philosophy is asking questions. Okay, philosophy is really good for asking questions and for critiquing answers, but it's not good at answering questions. Okay. Usually the other fields are better for answering questions. So, so philosophy can ask you, does God exist? Okay. Philosophy will not be able to give you a satisfactory answer. But philosophy can critique the answers that are given. And another big part of philosophy is that it is, by critiquing answers, critiquing knowledge, it's giving us categories and how to look at everything. So Aristotle sets up categories for how everything in the world works. And Immanuel Kant comes along and just changes it all. And a big part of, of, of Immanuel Kant, which is usually where everyone starts, is his ethical philosophy. So Groundwork for the Metaphysics of Morals is Immanuel Kant's book, Groundwork for the Metaphysics of Morals, or Foundations for the Metaphysics of Morals, um, where he's trying to develop a system of ethics. So what is ethics? In a nutshell, ethics is good conduct. Good. The goal of ethics is often happiness in other things, but ultimately it's, it's uh, in the most simple sense, we're talking about good conduct. Good. And so one of the questions in philosophy is how do we figure out what is good conduct? Good. And, and thus, that's, uh, this whole book will be explorations of that. So two things fill the earth fill the heart with ever-renewed and increasing awe and reverence. And the more often we meditate upon them, uh, or the more and more often we, we, the reverence increases when we meditate on these. One is the starry firmament above and the moral law within. Yeah. So, so in a way, physics around us and metaphysics within us. Yeah. So physics is how does the world work? Metaphysics is how does conduct work. Yeah. Okay, all right, let's continue. This year, the 400th anniversary of Galileo's first use of a telescope has been declared the International Year of Astronomy, so this seems a good time to ponder Kant's first source of awe and reverence. Indeed, the goal of the commemoration to help the world's citizens rediscover their place in the universe now has the incidental benefit of distracting us from nasty things near to home, like swine flu and the global, global financial crisis. Okay, so this is 2009. Okay. Okay. 
And so, um, so Galileo's first use of the telescope is, is uh, both important and it's misleading. It's important because this is a revolutionary moment in the, in the West, where science starts to show that it is more reliable than religion, and science starts to show that it is more reliable than philosophy, okay. or philosophy up to that point. And a way to think about this is that where does philosophy exist? It exists in language. It exists in the mind. And so how do you find answers? By way of arguments. Okay. But science is looking at the world. And so philosophy can say, well, you know, if light has, if light is a thing, then light should have a weight. So if I'm shooting a light at something, it should be a little bit lower than, um, than from where I'm setting it from. Okay, so that would be a, a philosophy argument. But with science, you can just actually measure it and say, all right, well, here's what, si here's what light really is. Okay. And so the invention of the telescope is one of those moments. Like it's this putting two lenses together and now we can see things really close like planets. Okay. And that's the good part of it. The misleading part about it is that, um, that Galileo is basically taking the telescope from, from others, uh, i.e. Muslim thinkers. Right. So his language here is proper. He goes, Galileo's first use of a telescope as opposed to Galileo's invention of the telescope. Right. And to really make the point, so, so 400 years before 2009 is 1609, 16009. And, and so, when does Muslim Spain end 1492? So, the, the dominant or the most prolific scientific, scientific developments were taking place in Spain uh, up till this point that the Muslims start getting wiped out. Okay. And then 20 years later, you have the Italian Renaissance. And we and at that time they didn't look at themselves as being in a renaissance, a rebirth. This is something that hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later, British philosophers looked back and said that was the Renaissance, the rebirth of the West. But a better way to frame it is that it's literally a continuation from the stuff that was happening in Spain, now developing further in Italy. Yeah. Um, just it works well that way. And so a lot of the developments that were taking place by Muslim uh, scholars and scientists and such are now just being continued on uh, with these uh, Italians and eventually people from other parts of Europe. Now, keep in mind, also, the Muslims themselves are building on other people. And a lot of it is the Greeks, the Egyptians and such. So one of the ways science works is just, you know, people are building on each other. And so, <clears throat> one line he has here, the goal of the commemoration to help the world's citizens rediscover their place in the world. This is also interesting, because when you look from the perspective of science, you're looking at, for example, the whole universe. Okay? And so, we're tiny in the universe. Okay? When you're looking from the perspective of religion, we're saying you should be humble compared to Allah, but you're the most valuable thing in the universe. So on the one hand, science is minimizing you as a person. Religion is maximizing you as a person. It doesn't make science wrong. But it does mean science does give us other perspectives. Like even when we say, 
Um, you know, like we always like to quote these days, the, the ayah in Surah 5, Surah Al-Ma'idah, that we told the children of Israel that if you take one life, it's as though you've taken all mankind. If you save one life, it's as though you've saved all mankind, right? And so, so a way to think about that is that the human being is so valuable that you can't even put a price on it. That if you take one life, it's, it's so valuable and immeasurable um, it's, you might as well have taken all of mankind. You just can't measure it. Okay. Likewise, if you save one life, it is so valuable. It's as though you've saved all of humanity. Right? And, and, and so the point there is that that's how valuable a human being is. That's the innate worth that a human being has. Well, let's see what, what he argues then from science. Let's continue to the next paragraph. What does astronomy tell us about the starry firmament above? <clears throat> By expanding our grasp of the vastness of the universe, science has, if anything, increased the awe and reverence we feel when we look up on a starry night, assuming, that is, that we have got far enough away from air pollution and excessive street lighting to see the stars properly. But, at the same time, our greater knowledge surely forces us to acknowledge that our place in the universe is not particularly significant. Okay, so what's, uh, what's he saying there? So it's basically like what you were talking about, how we are not significant at all yeah. in the universe. Yeah, in, in the vastness of the universe, Earth itself is insignificant, and how t uh, tiny are we compared to the Earth? Or the sun is insignificant. Even in the Milky Way, what to think of the whole universe. And he makes this interesting point on purpose, I think. Once we get past air pollution and excessive street lighting to see the stars properly... So we have things in this world that obscure our vision. And so these are he's making mention of physical things in this world that obscure our vision. Air pollution obscures our vision, especially when you want to look at the sky. The lighting on the streets, you know, light pollution makes it hard to look at the sky. So if you're in the city, it's all, you almost see no stars in the sky on a clear night, right? You have to move where there's where there's no pollution and no no lights. Then you can see all the stars twinkling in the sky. Okay. But what is the key point there? Things in our world, things within us, things around us, obscure our vision of, of the world. And he's going to touch on this more. Um, in his essay... Dreams and Facts, the philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote that our entire Milky Way galaxy is a tiny fragment of the universe, and within this fragment our solar system is an infinitesimal speck, and within this speck our planet is a microscopic dot. Okay, so that's pretty straightforward, right? It's, um, the, the Milky Way itself is tiny, okay. and then the solar system is even tinier, and then the Earth is even tinier, and then you have us. It's uh, like uh, I always have difficulty looking at photos of galaxies because my brain can't comprehend it, right? Um, and it's, on the one hand, I can't comprehend how gigantic it is. And then at the same time, it's always so beautiful to look at. And it's beyond the capacity of my brain to, to handle. I mean, at one level, I can just stare at it and say, oh, wow, that's nice. But to really try to comprehend it, that's, uh, that's beyond my brain. Yeah. Okay, continue. Today we don't need to rely on such verbal descriptions of our planet's insignificance against the background of our galaxy. The astronomer Carl Sagan suggested that the Voyager space probe capture an image of Earth as it reached the outer reaches of our solar system. 
It did so in 1990, and Earth shows up in a grainy image as a pale blue dot. If you go to YouTube and search for Carl Sagan, pale blue dot, you can see it and hear Sagan himself telling us that we must cherish our world because everything humans have ever valued exists only on that pale blue dot. Have you seen the photo? No. Uh, do a Google search while I just ramble on. And, and so the, uh, the, the, the photo is so interesting because you see these, these splotches, these streaks of light, and this little, little tiny uh, blue dot. Or you can just do a Google image search or YouTube, either one. That's it. That's, and so all the wars that are taking place in the universe are in that little spot. Or in all the wars that are taking place on Earth, all the fights that are taking place on Earth, all the, all the, the worldly problems that are driving us crazy, all the internal problems we're facing is in that little tiny space. Right. What do you think? Puts it in perspective, huh? <laughs> Talk about insignificance. Yeah. Yeah. And so, on the one hand, we might say that we're insignificant, but our problems are insignificant. I mean, that's that's then nothing. Everything is insignificant. Yeah. Then why does everything? Yeah, yeah. And so, so that's what it's like for the world of ants when we're looking at them in the worlds of termites. That. Uh, you know, who knows how complex their lives are. We can look from the outside in. I mean, it does not seem that they have a consciousness like ours. And, but from our perspective, you know, I might step on an ant and not even notice it, and I've ended an ant's world. And so, you know, for, for, for us, you know, I have all these things going on in my mind. All these things that are my hopes, my dreams, my troubles, Right. And it's still in the big picture, so insignificant. Right? It's all that insignificant. <laughs> okay, let's continue. That is a moving experience, but what should we learn from it? Russell sometimes wrote as if the fact that we are a mere speck in a vast universe showed that we don't really matter all that much. On this dot, tiny lumps of impure carbon and water of complicated structure with somewhat unusual physical and chemical properties crawl about for a few years until they are dissolved again into the elements of which they are compounded. Okay, so what has he done? He's basically framed uh, the world as just cause and effect. You have this mixture of carbon and water and all of these chemical properties and all these people that are formed from it will eventually become part of the fertilizer again. And so he's framing all this as just nonstop cause and effect, right? Now we're saying from a religious perspective, no, it's something much bigger than that, but that's part of the question he's raising. Let's go to the next paragraph. But no such nihilistic view of our existence follows from the size of our planetary home. And Russell himself was no nihilist. What's so what's nihilism? Thinking that everything's pointless, the yeah, world is... Yeah, exactly. I mean, isn't, wouldn't that be the, uh, uh, the interpretation we should take? when you look at how tiny the earth is, that everything is pointless, right? But um, he's saying that Russell was not a nihilist. So Russell himself is saying we're nothing but cause and effect. Okay? But he's still saying this is not pointless. So let's see where he goes. He thought that, 
He thought that it was important to confront the fact of our insignificant place in the universe because he did not want us to live under the illusory comfort of a belief that somehow the world had been created for our sake and that we are under the benevolent care of an all-powerful creator. Dun, 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 dun. So this is opposing what you were saying uh-huh. earlier. And so he's saying he doesn't want us to fall into the illusory comfort of a belief. Look at that language. Um, that all the world's created for us, which is what religion teaches us, this is what Islam teaches us, and that we are under the care, benevolent care of an all-powerful creator. So Russell's saying, no, 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 don't, buy, don't believe it that way. Yeah. Let's continue. Dreams and facts concludes with these stirring words. No man is liberated from fear who dare not see his place in the world as it is. No man can achieve the greatness of which he is capable until he has allowed himself to see his own littleness. So explain that quote. So in order to first overcome fear, you have to accept what you're supposed to do and like your role. Mm-hmm. And in order to accomplish something great, I guess, in order to accomplish something great, you have to be humble, you know, uh-huh. accept, as we're talking about, your insignificance. Yeah. So, so this is an interesting point. Uh, <clears throat> if I can see, you know, how insignificant my place is in the world, it becomes easier for me to liberate myself from fear because I can say it doesn't matter. Okay. If I can see how insignificant I am, then I'm more free to make whatever it is I want out of the world. Okay. Um, digest that for, for, for some time, and we'll try to revisit that quote at some point, inshallah, and see what you think of it. Okay, okay continue. After World War II, when the world was divided into nuclear-armed camps threatening each other with mutual destruction, Russell did not take the view that our insignificance, when considered against the vastness of the universe, meant that the end of life on Earth did not matter. On the contrary, he made nuclear disarmament the chief focus of his political activity for the remainder of his life. Okay, so explain that paragraph. So even though Russell had these views that human life is insignificant and it kind of doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't think it doesn't matter because it says he's not a nihilist. But even though he thought that human life was insignificant, he didn't think that the nuclear wars and whatever happened with the political stuff didn't matter mm-hmm. because he thought that it was still important. Mm-hmm. Why did he think that? Well, yeah, it doesn't explain why. Okay. So basically, yeah, um, he still fought against nuclear armament. Like, that was the chief focus of his political activity for the rest of his life. And so, uh, if I take atheism to its full conclusion, what I'm saying, I started out as as fertilizer, and I'm going to end as, as fertilizer, and none of this matters, that would be, so nihilism would be the proper conclusion of atheism. But... Uh, Bertrand Russell, who might be the most famous atheist of the 20th century, no, he said life is worth living. Okay. So how do they reconcile that? So let's see. Let's see if they do reconcile it. Okay. Sagan took a similar view. While seeing the earth as a whole diminishes the importance of things like national boundaries that, divides us, that divide us, he said it also underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot 
the only home we've ever known. Al Gore used the pale blue dot image at the end of his film, an inconvenient truth, suggesting that if we wreck this planet, we have nowhere else to go. Keep going. That's probably true, even though scientists are now discovering other planets outside our solar system. Perhaps one day we will find that we are not the only intelligent beings in the universe, and perhaps we will be able to discuss issues of interspecies ethics with such beings. This brings us back to Kant's other object. It's eleven o'clock. Sorry. <laughs> to Kant's other object of reverence and awe, the moral law within. What would beings with a completely different evolutionary origin from us, perhaps not even carbon-based life forms, think of our moral law? Okay. So, uh, so what's the conclusion here? He's saying. Uh, Russell is an atheist. Carl Sagan, you know who Carl Sagan is, right? Carl Sagan is his biggest astronomer. You know Neil deGrasse Tyson? Mm -hmm. So Carl Sagan was Neil deGrasse Tyson before Neil deGrasse Tyson. I mean, somebody my age will say Neil deGrasse Tyson is the new Carl Sagan. So a lot of what Neil deGrasse Tyson does now is what Carl Sagan did when I was young. And so you have these two people who are, who are atheists, and one is fighting a nuclear war, which basically means that even though it seems like life is not worth living, it is worth living. And then the other is saying that uh, we should preserve this world along with Al Gore. Al Gore was religious or is religious, but they're basically saying, um, looking at how insignificant it is, uh, this world is, we should be more kind with each other. Okay. And this is the only place we know, so if we ruin this, we got nothing. Okay. And then the author, Peter Singer, is saying, yeah, that's all probably true. And we're finding other planets uh, uh, which might have life on them. So, what seems to be the point of the essay? Oh, sorry. Um seems to be the point of the essay is yeah. that even though we are insignificant we have to like things do matter <laughs> yeah yeah basically and you think they argued it satisfactorily um but they didn't really make a connection like correct <laughs> yeah so i feel like something's missing yeah i agree with you so uh we'll have to wait to see in other essays do they do they make a bridge so you uh, will talk about that later, so you will first exactly. No, probably not. <laughs> uh, this is summing up the contradiction, right? So either I believe that there is something bigger than all this, whether we speak of Allah, the Day of Judgment, or some assigned purpose that I have, um, and that connects both things, that, yeah, I'm insignificant, but then I have this greater purpose. Or we take this approach, which is to say, yeah, you're insignificant, but you should still try to live your life, right? And um, doesn't seem like it fits, right? Yeah. I think the I think Sagan's view mm -hmm. is more logical than mm -hmm. Russell's view because I mean I think there's a bigger gap in his view because mm -hmm. he at least like Sagan kind of explained it. Uh -huh. He said if we deal more kindly with one another, and because we're so insignificant, and there's nowhere else to go then it does make sense to be kind and to take care of this world. Sure. So I think that's one reason. Okay. I mean, but if you're going to die and nothing matters, then it still doesn't matter. So let's hold on to this. The next essay, which we'll get to next time, inshallah, is called Does Anything Matter? And so we'll explore further. But uh, um, 
this will be part of our exploration, that if we remove all religion from the picture, can we show that there's a purpose to any of this? Right? Now, if we say religion's made up, then at least there's an artificial purpose, right? So let's say, let's say, you know, hypothetically, you know, like Islam is just completely made up. So this man 1,400 years ago named Muhammad just made up the Quran and made up um, all these things that are not compiled in the Hadith, right? Um, then at least I'm living in an illusion with the end result being the same that I'm just going to become fertilizer. So one way to think about it is that if religion is made up, what does it give me? Okay. But if religion is true, then you know what is that saying about the, you know um, all the universe? Okay. These are like the big general questions right now, which, like we said, philosophy is good at asking. Okay. You're kind of framing it like Pascal's wager. Yeah, I'm framing it very much like Pascal's wager. Okay. Yeah. Uh, why don't you remind everyone what is Pascal's wager? So Pascal's wager is. Basically, considering the two options, either God does exist or mm -hmm. God does not exist, and then also considering what you choose to do. So either you do believe in God or you don't believe in God, and then you compare the possible outcomes. So if God does exist and you believe in God, then infinite happiness and there's no yeah. loss. Yeah. If God does not exist and you do believe in God, then you have a finite loss, uh -huh. and there's not really any benefit. But if God does not exist, no wait, does that? No, if God does exist and you don't believe in God, then that is infinite eternal, loss. infinite loss, yeah. and no benefit. Yeah. And yes, basically. And in many ways, this sums up a lot of this. Um, so we'll see where things go in the next uh, next essay. Does anything matter? All right. Any last thoughts or questions? So, I guess this kind of goes hand in hand with a question that people always ask, like, why do atheists have morals if nothing matters, right? Uh -huh. So that's basically what they're asking, too? Yeah, that's very much what's being asked here. So what do people usually answer? For? Uh, I don't think people give satisfactory answers. Right. But let's see, let's see what Singer says in the next essay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Subhanakallahumma <laughs> Akhirat da'wana anil hamdulillahi rabbil alameen.